Let's take another look at the book of Romans. We'll take a little trip to ancient places and times, particularly the city of Rome in the first century. Paul writes a letter to the capital and biggest city that existed in that time. Powerful city, and there were believers in that location, and they were involved in little, probably little churches scattered throughout the city. Some of them house churches, some of them smaller than our group here, some of them probably a little larger. And we've looked at Paul's introduction, and there are two of them. The one that we're looking at this morning will begin in verse 8, is his personal introduction. So this letter is unique in that uh, it has two introductions, if you break them apart there. First one, more formal, and even it is not as typical as his other introductions to other letters that he has written. And Book of Romans being a longer, more theological book, has two introductions, beginning in verse 8, we have the personal introduction. We won't look at the whole personal introduction because it runs through verse 15, but uh, I'm hoping to get through verse 10 this morning. So that's kind of our goal. In the city, obviously, with the center of all things, it was center of culture, center of economics. So the Forum was a very, not only popular place in ancient Rome, and we have lots of archaeological remains from that period, from that time frame. And if you can imagine... Living in the city, you would have been thinking of places like this. The forum all around it would be political power as well as economic power. Lots of temples, lots of gods, if you will, Roman gods, Greek gods, mystery religions, all of that. And it's in that midst that the church at Rome had to cope. Also, corruption, not unlike a lot of what we have to face today. So there's lots in the book of Romans that applies to us. And since it's scripture, we know that it was written not just to the Romans, but by implication to us as well. So we're going to look at the introduction that runs through verse 17, and it's in two parts. Completed verse 7 last week, the formal introduction, and we're going to concentrate on the personal introduction. And in it, there are two major parts. We're just going to look at the first part. I call that praising prayers. So our alliterative key here, our P's, you might notice on the outline. Lots of P's. Paul's praising prayers. I'm going to break that down into the prayer of praise, prayers proven by God, Praise of God, proclamation of their faith, prayer of persistence, prayer of petition. So by the time you're done, we'll be tired of peace. Let's take a look at verse 8. And what do we do when we start looking and carefully analyzing and studying any passage in Scripture? Where do you start? What's the starting point? Context. Well, context, but the beginning. The beginning. What's, what's the first thing you do? All right. You hear what Linda? Oh, put your glasses on. (laughs) Linda's got it. Find out where the sentence begins and where the sentence ends. So verse 8, we have a very simple sentence, unlike the passage that we looked at the last four weeks. 
verses 1 through 7, one sentence, and it doesn't even have a verb in it. So he supplied the verb. Here's a simple sentence. So you all should be able to analyze this carefully. Once we isolate the sentence, what's the second thing that we try to do in every passage that we look at? We don't study verse by verse. In this case, one verse is the same as the first sentence. What do we do after we isolate a sentence? Well, yeah, subject and verb or the main clause, the main independent clause. And who can identify the main independent clause? Very good. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, comma. So the comma kind of helps you there. So if that's the independent clause, what is because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world? What is that? Dependent. Very good. Dependent clause. So there's the independent clause. And the subject? And who is the I in this context? Paul. So Paul is speaking, and he identified himself in verse 1, so he's still speaking. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. What's the verb? Thanks. So everything in this sentence has something to do with thankfulness. That's why I call it a prayer of praise, or you could even say thankfulness. I use praise in order to fit in with the P's, okay? And he says, praise to God. So we're going to break verse 8 down into two parts, and I'm going to give the dependent clause kind of equal weight here in the outline at least. So the first part focused on praising or thanking God, praise to God. And he starts off with first. And what does it mean by that? Well, something else is coming, but primarily, or this is the priority. This is what is most important in in beginning here. And what is most important in the beginning here? Praising God. And there's a principle that we can observe there. In other words, In fact, what I'm going to focus on, this is a prayer, essentially, or a a revelation of Paul praying. Everything in verses 8 through 10 is an expression of prayer. And what Paul is saying here, first and foremost, in your prayer life, start with praise. That's the beginning place. We have a tendency of starting where? Yeah. With petition. Use a P here. <laughs> we have a tendency of focusing on ourselves rather than focusing on the giver and the answerer of prayer. So that is a priority. That is first and foremost. Mary Lee. Oh, I would assume so. I'll leave that for your evaluation. So this is where we start. The starting point in prayer. The priority of prayer also. You might think in terms of how much time do I spend praising God? Or are my prayers, well, thank you, Lord, but I have all these lists that I'm praying for, all these requests. And I think the priority is thanking Him because if we are thankful... If that's the priority in prayer, thankful attitude, then everything else is going to fall into place. He knows what we need anyway. In fact, we don't even have to make requests. That's what uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He knows our needs already. So we should prioritize and think in terms of 
spending more time in praising him and allowing him just to do what he uh, feels is his will. Helen. Exactly. And you're, so you're, that's the acts like yeah, you're about three slides ahead of me. <laughs> All right. So the starting point, the priority in your prayer life is I thank my God, thankfulness. So let's take a look at that and expand what Ellen is telling us and go into that whole area itself. So in this passage, I think the main theme is really a prayer life or Paul's prayer life. And we'll use him as an illustration of what prayer is all about. And I probably should have uh, put some numbers on your outline sheet, and I sent it yesterday, so usually I don't finalize everything till Saturday, sometimes midnight Saturday. Yeah. So anyway, if you want to number uh, the applications, I've got seven of them. We haven't got to them yet. These are just the terms. I'll show you the slide that will have those applications. So we're going to focus on a model or a picture of prayer Using Paul as an example, and he prayed for the Romans, we're going to see. And the priority, the first thing is is worship. So here are the terms. I'm going to use this slide because this, this passage has four different words relating or directly in, involved with, with prayer. And the first one is Eucharisto, which is thanksgiving. Or I thank, the word I thank, that's the Greek word, that's in verse verse 8. Does anybody notice anything in that word that is a little bit familiar? Eucharist, is it? Eucharist, is it? Well, we get a word, Eucharist, from that, probably. Thanksgiving? Well, it is Thanksgiving, yeah. Somebody mentioned, who mentioned grace? You see grace in there? Charisto, Eucharisto. So it's relating to God's graciousness. Thankfulness, all right? Thanksgiving, and that's the priority. First, Paul says. So that's the Greek term there. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. And we saw in verse 7, he identifies the audience. That's why it's called Romans, because he's writing to the believers that reside in the city of Rome in the first century. So this is the application slide. And what we'll see in this passage, elements and principles of prayer. And the first principle is prayer should start with thanksgiving. should start with thanksgiving. So let's take a look at this concept of thanksgiving. Let's read these because these, what I want to show you here is this is a theme, particularly in the Psalms, but it is a theme of Scripture throughout Scripture. Somebody look up Psalm 34. You got it? Somebody 101 or 107.1. Jenny, 9.1. Somebody else? Real quick. All right, Connie. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Old Testament, New Testament. Somebody else got that one? Jeremy, you got that one? And we don't need to look up verse 8 because we can include it as well because that's the focus that we're looking at here. Who's got Psalm 30? David? Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints, and give thanks for your remembrance. Okay, and that is a constant theme, just an encouragement to give thanks to the Lord, the attitude of thanksgiving. In fact, 
the Psalms focus far more on God's, on thanking God and having a thankful attitude and one that is upward than you'll find petitions or things relating to ourselves. And that's just one example. You can find lots of them in the Psalms over and over and over. So just as Ellen said, praying for God himself, thanking him. We don't have a secular worldview that omits God. We have a God-centered worldview that he is prominent over all things, and we just want to praise him. We want to just worship him. And that's one of the purposes we gather every Sunday is just to focus and pray and acknowledge who he is. And I think Ellen was uh, alluding to God's attributes. Psalm 107, 1. You got that one, Jenny? Read it loud. Okay. Two attributes in that passage. What's the first one in that passage? The goodness of God. All good things, James says, comes from above, from the Father. Father of lights. His goodness. What's the other attribute in there? Loving kindness. That's chesed. That's the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed is a a love of commitment. There are two Hebrew words. We got the first one. It starts with an A. I can't remember. But anyway, the first one is more like a family or an emotional love, which is good as well. It's a kind of love. It's the love of attraction when Young people are attracted to one another. You can remember back, what, uh, 80 years ago for most of you. (laughs) Sorry about that. That love, that first attraction, that first feeling, that's one Hebrew word. This is the love of commitment. This is the love that you vowed on your wedding day, that you made a commitment and a vow. Loving kindness, that is God's way of dealing with us. He is committed to us by covenant and by contract. Now, it's this, he has a desire, obviously, but that's the love that's in view in, in that passage. We can praise him for that. He is a God that is committed to us. So he's looking after our well-being at every point, even when we are unresponsive to him. And you could look up just literally hundreds of passages that expose the attributes of God. Spend time praising him for his omnipotence. He has power to answer our prayers. He has power to do anything that he desires. He has the power to fulfill his plan that he's laid out. He's omniscient. He knows all things. Praise him for that. Because he knows all the options and he has chosen the best plan. There are other possibilities. We have a plan. The world has a plan. Politicians have a plan. It's oftentimes different from the plan of God. But God knows all things and is going to bring into effect all that he has intended. He's omniscient. He's wise. He's ever-present, omnipresent. And you can think of attribute after attribute. He's sovereign. He's in control. He is the ruler. That is his sovereignty. Praise him for those things. So I just gave you one passage just to illustrate it. But you can think of all of the attributes of God and spend time doing that. We can praise him for what he is doing, his works. Psalm 9-1. Who has that one? 
I will tell. In other words, I will praise you and I will broadcast all your marvelous works. Clear passage focusing on his works. Now you can be more specific. What has God done? And as you read through the book of Genesis, praise him for what he did with Adam and Eve in giving a plan of salvation that you and I enter into. Praise him that he deals with sin. He judges sin and will ultimately, and in a final way, bring sin to a conclusion and isolate it in the lake of fire. You can praise him for that. So you can read all of the scriptures and see what God has done historically in time and praise him. And that Psalm 9-1 just encourages us in a general way to praise him for his works. So these are things to give thanks to him. And First Thessalonians 2.13, and by the way, verse 8 kind of fits in that same category. Praise him for what he's doing individually. That's part of his works. What he's doing amongst other believers. Who's got First Thessalonians 2.13? For this reason, we also constantly thank God. That this is Paul again, constantly thanking God for what? That when you received the word of God heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but it really is, which also could work in you. Okay, so he's thanking God that he produced responsiveness in an un- in unbelievers, at this, in this case at Thessalonica, and God worked in a way to convict them, to bring them unto salvation. Now he's thanking the Thessalonians as well for responding but implied in that is that God is working within them to bring them to a saving faith. So we can praise him for when people come to know the Lord. Praise him that he is the one that worked all of that out in their experience. So growth of believers, and now as they are receiving the word, they will continue to grow. And then uh, verse 8, kind of in the same line of thinking, he's praising the believers in, at Rome because of what God is doing amongst them. So that's just a little bit, of, a few examples of where that word occurs and in the context of what it's it is. No, 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 that's uh, Romans. Okay? So praise to God. That's verse 8. The second part of the verse, the content of that praise or the reason he's giving praise is because of the proclamation of their faith. That's in verse 8. Because, here's the reason. Here's the reason he thanks God. Because your faith is being proclaimed. In other words, it's visible. People can see it. Now, he's not speaking so much, even though he's he uses a word that is commonly used for proclaiming the gospel or to preach the word. Sometimes it's translated preach to proclaim Broadcast, you could even say. He's praising that their faith is being broadcast. It's not that people are saying, hey, have you heard about the faith of the Romans? I think what he's implying here is it's visible, and people are seeing it. And not only that, but they're seeing it throughout the whole world, even in Albuquerque in the first century. Can you imagine that? Well, I think he's using a little what's called... uh, What's the uh, figure of speech? Hyperbole. That's the figure of speech. Hyperbole is a figure of speech. We use it all the time. And it gives the impression, in other words, it's, yeah, it's exaggeration to some point. 
but it's not inaccurate. It's a figure of speech to to give the idea that it's being proclaimed on a large scale. In other words, it's not just local. It's not just Italy. Others are hearing of the things and the expressions of faith of the Romans. And that's a neat thing. Paul is aware of it. That's why he's writing. So Paul hadn't visited Rome yet, but he had heard of the faith or the expression of the faith of the Romans. And this is the reason he's praising God, because it stimulates him, it encourages him to know that God is at work in far-off places. And we prayed this morning for the, the perchers. We, we praise God for what God is doing amongst them. And we had some petition as well, but we praised God for his work amongst them. And uh, anyone that you can think of that is in distant lands, you can pray for as well. But start with praising God. Malthusla. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure it didn't include every single individual in the entire world. It is hyperbole. But the point being, it's widespread. And it's beyond Italy and beyond, obviously, Rome as well. So your faith is being proclaimed. Uh, sort of what we five sixteen. It's like let your light shine for men in such a way that they may see your and glorify your heavens. Absolutely, yeah. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five. What is that? Thirteen. Uh, sixteen. Sixteen. Their light was shining brightly. Their good works were visible. They were visible expressions of their faith. In other words, they were trusting God to do things through them. Not necessarily doing it for them, you know, to call attention to themselves, but they were just living the Christian life in such a way that it was visible. And that's what he's praising God for. And it's ultimately, I thank my God, because your faith is being proclaimed. So ultimately, it's God that is working in the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish eternal things that are visible in not only the community of Rome, but are obviously having ramifications beyond Rome. So because your faith is being proclaimed, and then we commented on throughout the whole world. Okay, so that's verse 8. Another principle that we can draw from here is prayer should be focused on what God is doing and what God has already done. And that's part of the thanksgiving, praising God for things he is in the in the process of accomplishing, things that are ongoing, but also what he has already accomplished, and in terms of the Romans, what he accomplished in broadcasting their faith, it was visible, and that was something that he could praise God for. So there's your second principle, if you want to jot that down in your outline. That's number two. Verses 9 and 10, what do we have to do? We isolate a sentence. And I call this his prayer proven by God, or you might say God is his witness. You see that part there? Now here's the sentence. It starts in verse 9, doesn't end until we get to the end of verse 10, so we'll take it together. What is the independent clause of that entire sentence? Let's break it down here. Anyone want to suggest? Now, the four here oftentimes introduces a subordinate clause, but in this context, the four is more introductory. Okay? Say that again. What is the independent clause? It's my witness. God is my witness. There's a bunch of, uh, bunch of noise. Listen to Linda. What is Linda saying? What is it? 
Linda, say it louder. God is. All right. And you can include as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, comma. That is the independent clause right there. For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Now, obviously, grammatically, and also in terms of God speaking and communicating, the independent clause is the main, has the main idea of the whole sentence. Everything else is just telling you something about that independent clause. And within that independent clause, what is the subject? That is what everything else is related to, is that subject and that verb. And the subject in this case is God, and the verb is, and God is witness. So witness is subject complement. It tells us something about God. For God is my witness as how unceasingly I make mention of you. That's why I uh, focus here on a prayer proven by God or attested by God, witnessed to by God. And then I just break it down into two parts there. The first part that I break down in verse 9, I summarize all of verse 9 as prayer of persistence. That's the theme there. And it spills over into verse 10 as well. So this is the main idea. For God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. See that? Persistence. And he's just elaborating whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. He's elaborating God. In other words, inserting I serve God. But what he's doing is basically telling us what God is a witness to, and he's a witness to how unceasingly I make men of you. If you break down your sentence like that, you're digging out the meaning, the main idea, and you're digging out the meaning from the text. And that's what we try to emphasize. So, for God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. So it's a prayer of persistence, verse 9. For God, whom I serve, this is a subordinate clause, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son, that's a dependent clause. I serve is the heart of it. So Paul has a service. Let's break that down and take a look at it. And in that we have a interesting Greek word, latreo, to serve. And let me give you some other Greek words. And you don't detect this in the English text, but sometimes we have duleto. We've seen the noun form already, so you could probably figure out what the verb form is related to. What was duleto? Remember, we a doulos is a what? Slave. Is a slave. And where did we see that before? First verse, verse 1. Paul, a bond slave or bond servant. The lowest of slaves in the first century. The one that did the menial tasks in a household. So he was the lowest of slaves. The verb form has the idea to serve as well. And in some contexts it is simply translated to serve. And if you study it carefully, oftentimes it is related to the service of that doulos. The service of a slave. In other words, the service of menial tasks. Toilets have to be clean, right? So these tasks are important. They need to be done. But they are kind of 
undesirable and sometimes we don't like to do them, but they have to be done. But And it's a service, something that has to be done. You serve the family in order to keep good health, etc. But dulel, that's not the word here. That just occurs. I'm just kind of showing you kind of the range here. There's also diakonia. What does that sound like? Sounds like deacon, so it's a service of a deacon. It can involve spiritual things, it can, but also the deacons primarily do a service. Sometimes the treasurer of the church is a deacon. Uh, that's part of that service to the body of Christ. Or they do the maintenance, that sort of thing. That's diaconia, service of a deacon. It's not limited to deacons, because it's used in other contexts as well, but it's the service uh, to accomplish necessary things. Within a family, it involves other things as well. Not just menial tasks, also, although it could include them. So we have that Greek word. This one is different. The one that we have in this context is latreuo, and that has several contexts. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation in the Old Testament, it's service, service in the temple. Service in the temple. This is a function of the priests. The priests were involved in service. So it involved the sacrificial system. Remember Anna in uh, Luke, what is it, chapter 1? What did she do in the temple day and night? It says she was worshiping. It's this word. It has the idea of serving in a way that is worshipful. In fact, all service can be worship. And it was in the temple. That's Anna. can't remember the verse, uh, Luke, somewhere in there. Service in a temple. So it, it's not only exclusive to men or priests, but it's service, the service that includes even women. Anna, obviously, is the example there. And it's service in the Old Testament in, that included all of the aspects of the sacrificial system. And there were many aspects that took lots of effort, lots of work, lots of action was going on in the sacrificial system. And to perform those tasks was a service, and generally this is the word that is used. That's the word that's here in Romans 1. So Paul, being Jewish, I think it is not using it in this sense specifically, but it has a sense of doing things that are closely related to God himself. It sometimes is translated worship and used in this idea of a service that is worshipful. It's used in some context that way. In fact, in that passage dealing with Anna, that's usually how it's translated. 2, 36 and 37, there's Anna. And read, why don't you read it since you've got it there. And then the daughter of the tribe of Asher, she was very fasting in prayer. Worshipping there, la truo. So serving there. She's not just on her knees praying. She is worshipping with the full thrust of service involved as well. In this context, it has the idea of spiritual service. That's what Paul is talking about here. Spiritual service that involves the Romans. And it involves prayer. So prayer can be a service, can be something that obviously God can use, can be worshipful if it's in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son. So it's expressed in the preaching of the gospel. 
has the idea of work or ministry and the preaching of the gospel is a spiritual work. It's a work that uh, comes from God himself and it's the kind of work that a priest would do. It's it's directly involved in the worship in uh, first century in a church context rather than in a Jewish context. So he does it in my spirit. In other words, it's inward. It's it's from within, expressing outward. And we can bring a principle from that. It's in the midst of ministry that we can be prayerful, and in that prayerfulness, it involves the things that we're involved in. And it focuses in on serving God. That's why he inserts it in the middle there. It's in the midst of serving God that uh, this prayer is expressed, in the midst of ministry. And it can be a spiritual service to God. For God, and here's the subject, is my witness. That's the heart of it. And that's where I get the idea. It's with the full assurance that God is behind these prayers. And God is active. God is working. And later on, it's going to talk about God's will. But you can talk about God's will with that little phrase as well. In other words, it's within the plan of God, what God has intended to work with the assurance of God. God is his witness. So he's right in line with what God has in mind for him. His prayers are aligning with God. God, If God were to speak overtly to the Romans, God would tell the Romans, listen to Paul, I am using him in this letter. So it's with the full assurance that he has the backing of God. God is his witness, Paul says. And then how the content, how unceasingly I make mention of you. So it's unceasing. In other words, it's continuous. It's not just in this letter. This is a practice of Paul. And you can imagine, Paul didn't just pray for the Romans. But he prayed for the Corinthians, he prayed for the Ephesians, he prayed for the Philippians. He prayed for other churches that are not even mentioned in the New Testament. This was an ongoing thing. And it was unceasing. This is what he means when he encourages pray, what? Without ceasing. In other words, continuous, persistent. And it's not because God is not hearing. We pray persistently because we need it. Not because God needs to hear from us. We pray because we need to be in contact. We need to have our thoughts aligned. We need to think in terms of, okay, what is God doing here and how do I align myself so I will pray continuously? It's not for God's benefit. He knows everything. He's omniscient. So how unceasingly I make mention. Notice the little word, make mention, takes two English words to translate a little Greek word. The Greek word is mania. It's in verse 9 there. Make mention. It's a prayer word. So as he's praying, he's remembering and making mention concerning things going on in Rome. We have a second Greek word. That's why the theme here is prayer. And Paul is the example of prayer. And that brings us to the obvious application number five. Prayer requires perseverance, not to beg, not to manipulate God, not to make sure he hears, but to make sure we are in line with what God has. So we pray persistently for particular things, 
And if it seems that God is not answering, it's not because he's not hearing, it's not because he doesn't have the power to answer, but it may be that I need to shift my emphasis, I need to realign my prayer and maybe think in terms of what God might be doing that is different than what I may have in mind. And persistence will do that. In other words, over time, God begins to reveal and unveil what he wants to do in specific situations. Make sense? So some of the elements and principles, it starts with thanksgiving. That's the priority. That's the beginning place. It involves what God is doing in your life and in the believers around you. It's in the midst of you ministering to these people. It's in the midst of you having an involvement of what God wants you to do. It's with the full assurance of God that we, we have confidence. That's where we approach the throne of grace boldly because we have confidence. God is working and it requires perseverance or persistence, you might even say. Another P. Persistence, perseverance. Two Ps. The passing for And what is it? Luke eleven five thirteen. Oh, Luke eleven five through thirteen. Very good. Lots of verses. Start us. Start it off. He also said to them, "Sit from inside and say, don't bother me. Off and my okay, that's the parable of persistent prayer, right? Okay. I tell you, even if you give up, you get up and give him any kinds of friends persist me. So I say, you keep asking and Okay. Okay. Very good. Kind of an example of persistent prayer. Little parable that Jesus gives. Very good. What was that again? Luke, Luke eleven five through thirteen. All right. Good. So verse ten. Verse ten. It's a prayer of petition. Now we finally get to petition. The last, last part of prayer starts with thanksgiving. Don't forget that. And then it proceeds eventually to petition, and that's what we have here. And not only that, but you can even add the persistence here. He unceasingly makes mention always. So it's a consistent prayer. That's persistence. Always in my prayer. And, the, well, the word there, in my prayers, we have another Greek word there. And, by the way, that's the general term that's used real often for prayer. And it's usually just translated prayer. Prasuke is the general Greek word for prayer and occurs virtually hundreds, hundreds of times in the scriptures. What I'm doing is just showing you that this passage is mainly dealing with prayer. So here's a key prayer passage that if you want to use, uh, this would be a good one because it gives us an example of effective prayer or apostolic prayer even. So there's a third Greek word. And then always making requests. Making requests. One word. And that's the fourth word there. Delmai, that's petition. Making request. These are the specifics. This is what we jump to, or our tendency is to jump to. In other words, God, I need this, whatever. New car, whatever. That's petition. Now, that's legitimate. God wants us to bring our needs to him. He wants us to express our desires in terms of what we want to see him do. That's that's part of prayer. But in terms of the priority, first is thanksgiving, and then eventually, by the time I prayed and praised him and thanked him, then my petitions will be more in line with with what his will is. So we have petition, and it includes specific petitions, if you can't read that. It includes specific 
petitions. So there's your elements and principles. There's number seven, by the way. We always have to have seven, right? Number of completeness. All right, we'll have that there. If perhaps now, at last, and by the way, now this is the petition. This is his request. This is what Paul has been praying for. Now, he's prayed for them for lots of things, but mainly it's been praise. Praise for what God has done amongst them. The fact that their faith is uh, being proclaimed. The idea of his unceasing prayer, his involvement in the preaching of the gospel, it's involved with all that God is doing. But the specific petition at the latter part of verse 10, if perhaps now at last. In other words, this is what I'm praying about. And what does he say? By the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. That's his specific petition. He has a desire that God would clear the way, present the opportunity that he may come and visit the Romans. That's the specific prayer. So it gets down to what our desires are, what our request is. And by the way, on the third missionary journey, Paul desired, this is when this letter was written, Paul desired to visit them. And because of the circumstances, because of the sovereign hand of God, the opportunity was not there. In fact, uh, we know from the book of Acts, Paul then goes back to Jerusalem. And he wanted to be in Jerusalem because there were other things that God had for him there relating to the day of Pentecost. So the time ran out and he couldn't visit Rome. So he does the second best thing is now he writes this letter. And in the letter, he tells us that this is something that he that he's been praying for. But it has to be by the will of God. Paul didn't just decide, well, I'm in Corinth, the next stop. No matter what God has in view here, I'm going to go to Rome. That's what I want to do. I want to see the Romans. No, God diverted him and gave him a different plan. We saw that in the second missionary journey as well. He had a plan to visit the Asia Minor area. And God redirected him, and then he had the Macedonian call, and now in the second missionary journey, he leaves Asia Minor and goes to Macedonia. So it's within the will of God. And obviously you can come up with, what's the last principle there in prayer? You can come up with it. Pray in God's will, according to God's will. Pray according to God's will. So as we are praying, even our petitions, we need to ask, Lord, what is it that you want? What is your desire here? You want me that to have that new fancy car? Maybe he does. I don't know. Uh, part of prayer. Or do you want me to have a bike? <laughs> oh, a new one, yeah. New fancy one. Right. So there's your elements and principles. It starts with thanksgiving. It involves God's work. We pray for what God is doing presently that you're aware of. So it's in the midst of that ministry that you might have. It's with the full assurance that God can answer and will answer. And it's not because of lack of power. It's more, number seven, whether or not it's his will or not. But number five, it involves or requires persistence. Includes specific petitions. Specific requests. And in this case, that Paul may have an opportunity to visit the Romans and is according to God's will. I may succeed in coming to you. That's what content of the prayer. He wrote this? No, from Corinth. In other words, from Corinth, 
that would have been the opportunity to go to Rome. That's the closest route to Rome from Corinth. And from Corinth, he realizes God's redirecting him. He's going to go east instead of west. But this is what he's praying for, that I may succeed in coming to you. That is the request. That's the petition, the specific petition. Be specific in your prayers as well. You could add that as a principle. Here's the specific request. Okay, closing thought. Prayer should be a part of our ministry to our Lord. In fact, it should be the beginning place, the heart of it, and it should begin. Yes, obviously, very much so. But we're saying, first of all, is his purpose kind of being how or what, which is this? This whole passage? I think this passage just expresses Paul's relationship to the Romans. In other words, it expresses his heart, but in the process of it, it gives us a pattern of prayer. Okay, right. and I, I so might have, kind of, I've emphasized that aspect more so. So, in relation to our, uh, petitions. Oh, he doesn't include that. Very good. Confession. He's assuming you've already done that. And that should be at the very beginning as well. In this example, we don't have it though. Good. Yeah, we need to be reminded of that because oftentimes we come with our agenda and we should begin. Very good. But the priority is Thanksgiving. But the actual chronological beginning should be with confession. Very good. So prayer should be part of our ministry to our Lord. Who wants to start us off with prayer? And let's see if you follow the path. <laughs> We're going to be listening to your prayer. Nobody wants to do it. <laughs> Connie's praying. Oh. Heavenly Father, all that you have you are mighty and awesome. Um, the Father, all that you have you are awesome. In Jesus' name. 